All right, Jesse, last week was such a fascinating, wild twist of a story. What do you got for me this time around? After a renowned scholar and law professor is shot to death in his driveway, investigators scramble to put the pieces together to reveal a web of deceit and betrayal, and eventually, the killers. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about crappy spouses, worse in-laws, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show chef's kiss for all of your reviews this week. We love you guys so much. Thank you. They were very nice. It's nice to feel loved in the season of giving. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, you can head over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. And speaking of Patreon, we are so excited as always this week to welcome and shout out a new set of incredible patrons. Tavis D and Susan M. Stephanie S. and Marcella K. Michaela B. and Amanda S. And Jessica H. Woo! Woohoo! Thank you, Jessica H. and all of our new patrons. We will be doing a watch party this Friday, actually. So we haven't picked what we're watching yet, but we'll be watching something. We will. <laughs> we will. So, guys, we should be sending you an email. You probably should have received it by now if it's Wednesday. So. Hopefully you've gotten it and we'll be watch partying it up with you on Friday. And I would like to also thank Jennifer B.B. for recommending today's story, which I know you actually already know about. I was going to say I recommended it like six years ago. (laughs) Yes, you did. Were you the one who recommended the podcast to me? Yeah. All right. So we're going to get into all of that. But With that note, I think I'm going to jump right in. I'm so excited. I just know that you're going to uncover so many things that I don't know yet. So I'm stoked. I hope so. It was an early aughts triumph of technology that brought Wendy Adelson and Dan Markell together in 2004. Dan was living in Washington, D.C., where he worked at a prestigious law firm. And Wendy was finishing law school in Miami when they met on the Jewish dating site JDate. Once they met, it felt like everything just clicked into place. Both Wendy and Dan were good-looking, fiercely intelligent, well-educated, and, of course, Jewish. Both were absolutely the type of person that you would want to bring home to your parents. They overcame the long distance to make a life together and wed two years after meeting in a fairy tale ballroom wedding. Beautiful Wendy and dynamic Dan seemed to have it all. But over the years, the love and core values that they once shared began to erode, leaving something hostile, dark, and resentful in its place. One partner became blindsided by betrayal, while the other moved on ruthlessly and with stunning speed. Soon, a brilliant man lay dead due to the coldest and most callous of reasons. 
and his loving family was left to fight for justice and keep his memory alive throughout the battle and beyond. Andy actually recommended this case to me in the form of the podcast Over My Dead Body. I think now on like three years ago. Yeah, I think I exaggerated. I think COVID makes me think that everything's a lot longer than it is. But I think it was 2019. Yeah, I think it came out early 2019, maybe. Yeah, because it was also the same podcast that covered Joe Exotic. Exactly. They're season two. So you guys definitely know this podcast, Over My Dead Body. So season one was about Dan Markell's case. Season two was Joe Exotic. And then they have a season three called Fox Lake. All are fantastic. But this was definitely the one that hooked Andy and I. Back before we started Love Murder, we were just trading true crime podcast recommendations back and forth. Yep. All the time. Calling each other in real time to discuss them. (laughs) Yeah. So this was definitely the case that hooked us. It was one of our very first podcasts that we obsessively shared with one another. And then the other source that I'm using today, and and I did gather several sources. I'll, I'll mention the journalists as we go through the story. But the other primary source is a completely heartbreaking and beautiful book called The Unveiling, which is actually written by Ruth Markell, Dan's mother. It is billed as a mother's reflection on murder, grief, and trial life. And I got to tell you guys, I was absolutely in tears throughout parts of this incredibly moving and sad memoir of fighting for justice and becoming an advocate and grieving. It's really, really beautiful. And I'm very excited. You know, Andy already knows this. <laughs> we've, we've talked about it. But I'm really excited that we get to share with all of you guys that we will be interviewing Ruth later this week. So the interview should be out early next week. So look for it Monday or Tuesday. And I think, Andy, we have a lot to ask Ruth. Oh, my God. I'm very much looking forward to her sharing her wisdom with us. So what's different about this case than our usual fare is that it's still unfolding. This case is not even remotely close to finished, even though I would definitely not build this one as unsolved. I really do think that the cogs of justice, the wheels, they are turning. And the people that deserve to get got are going to get theirs in the end. So before I give too much away, I'm going to start talking about Dan. Dan Markell was born on October 9, 1972, in Montreal, and then primarily raised in Toronto with his older sister, Shelley. His parents were Ruth and Phil, who instilled in their children a love of travel, an intellectual curiosity, a strong work ethic, and a dedication to their Jewish faith. Dan was a spirited and resourceful child who was full of energy Now, this kind of sounds like my worst nightmare, but Ruth in her book describes him as being somebody who never napped, even as a baby, who would spring up at six, seven in the morning and then like go about his day with full energy until he went to bed at night as if he was like getting up in the morning to go to a job. (laughs) I was like, oh, God, don't tell me that. I I don't need that in my life. No napping kids. (laughs) I could not imagine. Yeah. She even told a story about how when he was four he managed to get lost while he was out shopping with his father at a mall. And he managed to get out, go to a kiosk, and then dial his mother on her home phone number and be like, Mom, I'm lost. I'll stay here when he was only four years old. Unbelievable. So he was smart, but he was a little bit of a troublemaker, it sounds like. (laughs) 
Well, school came very easily to Dan, and he also ran his school newspaper as well as playing hockey, tennis, and baseball. He was a great skier. In short, he was just very well-rounded and driven. At a very early age, he had announced to his family that he planned on going to Harvard University. And like most things that Dan went for in life, he got it. He was accepted. After completing his undergraduate at the Ivy League institution, Dan continued his education at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and then went on to earn a master's degree in political theory from Cambridge. Wow. And from there, he went back to Harvard for law school. Just doing the rounds. That just even saying those sentences make me feel exhausted. I know. <laughs> I know. Dan absolutely loved travel, and he loved living all over the world. He loved going to school in different places, taking jobs in new places. He had the ability to make a community wherever he went, and he ended up living in Montreal, Toronto, Boston, London, Jerusalem, Phoenix, San Francisco, and he was in Washington, D.C. when he met Wendy on J-Date. Now, Wendy was beautiful. She was witty, she was well-educated, and she seemingly had an amazing family that also shared the Markel's Jewish faith. Her father, Harvey, was a dentist while her mother, Donna, was a school teacher turned stay-at-home mom, and Wendy was the baby of the family and the only girl. She had two older brothers, Rob, who became a doctor, and middle brother, Charlie, who became a periodontist and eventually joined his father at work the father and son team running the Adelson Institute in Miami, which was a very lucrative and popular dental practice, essentially. Wendy was also extremely well-educated, having collected degrees from Brandeis, University of Cambridge, and Miami School of Law. So it seems like these people are incredibly well-matched. Yes. If I was a matchmaker, I would say these are two driven, successful, well-educated people from similar backgrounds that are very likely to have a successful union for all of those reasons. And Dan did seem totally taken with Wendy. He was willing to quit his job at the prestigious law firm in Washington, D.C., so that he could be closer to her in Florida while she finished law school. So he couldn't find an appointment in Miami, but he did end up getting a great position as a law professor at Florida State University, which wasn't necessarily super close because in the book, they say that Tallahassee, which is where FSU is, to Miami is like 10 hours. I Googled it and they said it was more like seven hours, but still anywhere from seven to 10 hours is not close. No, it's I mean, Tallahassee is like the northern part of Florida and Miami's the most southern part. So it's not close. No, it's not close. I guess it was just closer than Washington, D.C. So he got as close as he could to be near her. And then they started making plans to get married. And it was at the wedding that friends and family began to see the first cracks in what seemed like a perfect on paper union, which I know you'll probably remember from Over My Dead Body. I do. Well, one of the first red flags for Dan's family was that when they were preparing for the rehearsal dinner and all of the events leading up to the wedding and after people were preparing speeches and he pulled them aside and he said to please not mention Harvard even though I mean anyone who goes to Harvard I know they don't like to brag about it but everyone else knows it's a huge accomplishment especially to go back for law school I'm sure some people like to brag about it 
<laughs> I think some people do. He's just humble. I think it's honestly worse if you don't just say Harvard. If you're like, I went to school in Cambridge. Yeah, Boston, I went to an Ivy League school in Cambridge. This isn't what I was thinking. So I'm um, once again, oh, no, you surprised me. Oh, no, we get to me. the second one, okay. too. Okay. Yeah. And so they thought that was really strange. They thought it was strange that he didn't want them to mention Harvard. And he said it was because that he felt like Wendy was very insecure about her education in comparison. And she wouldn't want their wedding weekend to be all about Dan and his accomplishments. It's about celebrating two people individually and how they come together as one. So I, if you actually really unconditionally love someone, you would be so all about talking about their accomplishments. Well, you wouldn't be competitive, I think, if my partner had gone to Harvard. I would be like the first to be wearing the Harvard sweatshirt. Yes, and of course. So excited. Of course. It's really great to celebrate the things that make your spouse wonderful and accomplished. I mean, your partner did go to Northwestern, so I don't I don't know where your sweater is because you should Where's be wearing that Northwestern around. Where's my Northwestern sweatshirt? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have a lot of purple between Emerson and Northwestern. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so they also were kind of like stung by this because then when they did, people were doing the speeches, everyone was talking about everything that Wendy had accomplished and how great she was and all these accolades about her. And his parents were kind of left with being like, yeah, he's wonderful. She's wonderful. And they didn't get to like, you know, brag the same way parents like to do on these momentous occasions, the way they felt like everyone else was doing about Wendy. And then the other thing, which I know Andy already knows, is that Dan kept a very strict kosher. Now, he was raised in the Jewish faith, but he was actually more observant than his parents were. It was really important to him. He even wanted to be a rabbi up until he was about 12 years old. And working with the Jewish customs and being slightly more conservative in his beliefs, staying kosher was like one of the very high tenets of core beliefs. And they had talked about it and they were kosher together leading up to the wedding. They were mostly vegetarian. And the Markells did not get to have much of a hand in wedding planning, but the only thing that they requested due to the guests on their guest list and Dan's own beliefs was that the catering was kosher. And they were told that that was absolutely going to happen. But very early on, from the moment the reception started, it was clear that it was not kosher because meat and cheese were being served together right from the get, which you cannot mix dairy and meat when you're you're staying kosher. And it was clear that the food was not kosher at all, which resulted in the rabbi who was officiating the wedding having to leave after having married them. Now he cannot participate in the reception. And there was several people that Dan had to run around to and basically like hit the food out of their mouth and be like, don't eat it. It's not kosher. Yep. He was going to have to run around and warn all of his kosher guests that they can't eat the food that was just served to them. Also, when you go to a wedding and you've been already probably at a ceremony for a few hours and then you come to the reception and you're starving. (laughs) Yeah, that's terrible. That's hours and hours and hours without eating if you can't eat the food. I mean, I would go grab food somewhere else and come back. Absolutely. And I think that's what some people had to do. I don't know what Dan did. I don't think he left his own wedding. But it was, I think, really galling because it didn't seem like the Adelsons cared. They weren't sorry. They were just like, well, they can go somewhere else, basically. And that was a huge red flag because it's such a lack of respect. For the family that you're joining with. Yes, absolutely. And the guests that came to celebrate your union, like even 
having people over. Like, for instance, my parents and Andy are family. Andy's part of our family. My parents, like, I, you know, I've told you guys, I grew up on a farm. We kill our own livestock. It is like a very meat-heavy family. And when Andy comes, they always make sure, even if they don't understand it, that there's vegan options, that there's lots of veggies. Or they ask a million questions, too. And I'm always so happy to help them and help understand. I mean, it's a totally different way of growing up. So it's like... Exactly. But the thing is, is it's a sign of respect. It's not whether you want to live your life that way. It's about the people you love who, I mean, especially for Dan, which is for religious reasons, yes. have those dietary restrictions. It's saying that I love you enough and I respect you enough to honor the way you choose to live your life. So I just think that's actually a huge, huge red flag here. And that's, that was one that was brought and up. And Ruth felt it too, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's embarrassing because a lot of them were the Markel side guests as well. Dan's adherence to more conservative Jewish customs and practices would become a huge point of contention between him and Wendy, as well as her mother, Donna, who didn't understand why Dan was even more observant than his parents. Usually these things, as the generations go on, the kids get a little bit more relaxed. Yeah. But it was actually Dan and Shelley who were more observant than their parents, Ruth and Phil. Though the couple went on to have two wonderful baby boys named Benjamin and Lincoln in very quick succession. I think they were only a year or so apart from each other. Issues certainly plagued the marriage. While Dan built a rich community in Tallahassee, Wendy seemed to resent being away from a larger city and desired to move to Miami where her parents and brother Charlie lived. So Dan could not find a position in Miami. We already talked about that at the beginning. And then even later on when he's looking at transferring, but he already even had tenure at FSU after only four years on faculty. Wow. Which is extremely difficult to receive. Yes. So it's kind of like, why would he move at that point? And he was extremely active at his local synagogue and he worked with an amazing network of law professionals. He even founded a very popular blog called Prof's Blog for Law Professors. The other thing is that Ruth mentions in her book is that Wendy had a very specific set of locations where she would live. She wanted it to be a place that was warm year round. So it had to be southern or west coast. It had to be in a major city or near a major city. It had to be there was like all these conditions it, like it was preferably Miami, of course. So when Dan is looking, he would have lived everywhere. This is the guy that loved travel, that loved living in a million places. And they were very much hampered by Wendy's desires about where they lived. And so he thought ending up in Tallahassee, which is a long drive, but still just a drive or a quick flight from Miami, was really probably a very good compromise given that his parents lived in Toronto. Yep, totally. They're in the same state, at least. Yeah, the same state, let alone like he's not even in the same country as his parents. So he was willing to give up a lot more, but that was one thing he just would not give up on is that he had to find a place that was best for his career and has a good community for him as well. And the problem was that Wendy didn't really seem to try as much as Dan did to be part of that community. She, I think, had a little resentment that she was essentially hired by FSU as a clinical instructor, but it was like a spousal hire. That's because in a lot of these collegiate academic areas, in order to recruit the most intelligent people, the best brains, the best instructors, 
they will sweeten the pot by saying, if you move here and take this position, we will also find a position for your spouse. Which is incredible. Which is great. And Wendy actually did a good job. I mean, it's hit or miss. Like if you have a professor that has kind of a not so great spouse, then you might have like kind of a, I don't know, a duffer there. But everyone said that Wendy did a great job, but she was not happy. And that was clear. After the birth of her children, she did transition into working in immigration law, helping victims of human trafficking, which is fantastic. But it still did not seem to be enough. The resentment and maybe this lack of love from the beginning boiled over into a novel that she wrote. And now this novel was called This Is Our Story. And it was ostensibly about the scourge of human trafficking told through the point of view of two trafficked young women and their immigration attorney, Lily. Well, you could probably guess who Lily was based after. That's right, Wendy herself. In the book, Lily resents her husband, who is described as this clueless, bumbling professor type, and being stuck in what she describes as a backwater town, which was very thinly veiled about her own life and the feelings about her husband and being in Tallahassee. Oh my God, I forgot about all of this. I forgot about her novella. At the end of the book, Lily leaves her husband and child and moves away. I think Amazon reviewer Please Pass the Books put it best in their two-star review when they said, while I applaud any person who champions the plight of trafficking victims, snap snaps, to me, this book just felt like an attempt by the author to inflate her own egocentricities. Pretty accurate. Fair enough. And to be fair, I did not read the book. Sounds like not a lot of people did. (laughs) And a big point of contention, though, in Dan and Wendy's marriage at this point was that he had not read the book either. I wouldn't want to. This This is something Wendy contends he did not read the book. Now, there's a guy on Over My Dead Body who's a colleague. I think you probably remember this. Who's talking and he's like, well, Dan was a very academic, intelligent, real scholar. Why would he read this piece of shit? Seriously. (laughs) The colleague said. Also, like, if he had any whiff of what the context of the book was, why would he want to read about her alter ego essentially leaving him? Yes. But the thing is, is that Ruth contends that he did actually read the book. Really? And what is completely proven is that he promoted it on Prof's blog. He wrote a whole post about his wife had published a book and he was so proud of her and told people to pick up a copy. So even given that she was basically bad-mouthing him in this book, he still promoted it to try to help her out. Yeah, I mean, he's a good person. He is a good person. And what's also kind of sad is that they have this clip on Over My Dead Body of her later on in life doing this, I guess she was part of a creative writing podcast. Do you remember that? Yes, it was so cringe. It's so cringe. You guys definitely go back and listen to Over My Dead Body season one so you can hear all of these clips and how you can get like a real full robust story. I'm going to try to do the best I can. There's so much in that great show. And speaking of Wondery, I know they're one of our sponsors this week. They're a Wondery show. But yeah, she's basically said that she never loved Dan while she's doing this weird monologue 
she said something that essentially she thought she could beat the system. She thought that Dan was the perfect guy. He was clearly going to be a good father. He was well-educated. He was really smart. And so she said, I never loved him. I never had passionate love for him. But I believed that you didn't need passion and that in all marriages it goes away anyway. So why not marry the guy that's the best choice and not worry about the passionate side? So she's saying this publicly. And that's really unfortunate because I know that Dan didn't feel that way. And if you're going to have that type of passionless relationship, you need to inform the person you're marrying that maybe you do not feel excited about them, emotionally in love with them. There has to be some element of romance for a long-term partnership I believe in. Or you just are a bad person and you don't say anything in your creative writing class because it makes you look like a bigger dick. Yeah, maybe don't do that either. Especially given we're going to get, this is a this is a time frame that's way out, so it's even more inappropriate later on. Oh, my God. But yeah, so I think that there was this feeling on Wendy's side of being resentful that she was stuck in this relationship that she wasn't satisfied, that Dan's career was taking off in a way that hers wasn't. She was very, 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 maybe unhealthfully close to her family, and... She wanted to be near them. And everything at this point is not going well for them. I mean, the writing's on the wall. The writing's in the book. Let's just say that. The writing's in the creative writing podcast. Yes. Or just the book she wrote was like very clearly veiled Dan criticism. Also, another thing is like, you really got to insert yourself in a narrative about human trafficking. No. Why would your petty domestic issues need to be a part of that story? Maybe Wendy wanted Dan to read the book just to see how unhappy she was. Ruth wrote that there was a significant coldness between the couple in the spring of 2012. But little did any of the Markells know, least of all Dan, that Wendy was planning and plotting to divorce Dan and take the kids with her family all summer long. Later emails will show Mother Donna helping her along the way, encouraging Wendy to be a good actress and act like everything was fine while they put all of the pieces in line to completely blindside Dan. And Dan was indeed blindsided. He would later call the way he found out that Wendy was leaving him as his own Pearl Harbor. While Dan was in New York City preparing to give a lecture, Wendy called him and simply told him she was leaving him for good. Dan quickly canceled his lecture. He called his parents and said, I don't know what's going on. She just told me she's leaving me. I need to get home right now. And he flew directly home in an effort to repair the marriage. However, what he returned to was a home that was almost completely empty. Ruth was on the phone with him when he went into his house and he described and she could hear this echoiness. You know, when you walk into a house that doesn't have any furniture and most of the furniture was gone, he's calling out for his kids and his wife and they're gone. And so he runs up to his son's room. They shared a room and he just starts crying because some things and a lot of the big furniture was missing from the main part of the house, but when he went into his son's room, everything was gone. All the toys, the books, the clothes, the furniture, their beds, everything was gone. And he doesn't even know where his kids are. 
he doesn't know where she would have taken them. Terrifying. Terrifying. On his own bed when he wandered into their bedroom was a bare mattress that he found divorce papers outlining a child custody arrangement that favored Wendy. You hear like stories about this when I listened to Over My Dead Body and they were explaining this. I was like, this is like a horror movie scene in real life. It is. Yeah. It is. It's my worst nightmare to think about my spouse calling me and saying our marriage is done without us having any conversation repairing it or conversation about it and then coming home and realizing I have no idea what my children are like I cannot it's torture it is it is it's emotionally devastating and torturous and when he got his wits about him and was trying to figure out where his kids were the next thing he realized is that she had access to all of their money and all of their accounts So he started looking those up and he realized that she had taken half of all of the bank and investment accounts as well as emptied out a safety deposit box that the couple shared. With that, I don't understand how you can do that if you're not like both there. Like that should be a thing where if it's a joint account, like both need to sign off on it because like in either way, if it's the partner that's making all the money or the partner that isn't making all the money, it shouldn't be, that should not be allowed. Should be a joint decision, a joint effort, joint action. Yeah, I'm sure that there's something set up for that. I wonder if it's like based on the amount, but yeah. So unsurprisingly, the divorce turned contentious. We've got two attorneys here and the stakes are the custody of their kids. There was money at stake too, but that was so not of importance to Dan, obviously. It was really about the custody of the kids. And Dan was also described as somebody who's a very fierce debater and a tireless fighter when it came to the things he believed in and the people he loved. So he was not going to back down from a fight when it had to do with his kids. He was able to successfully file for 50-50 custody, but co-parenting was not a walk in the park. It seemed that Wendy and her parents did not even try to keep kosher with the kids, allowing them to eat cheeseburgers from McDonald's, And going so far to tell the daycare that they could feed the boys regular hot dogs with the rest of the kids, regular pork hot dogs, when previously Wendy and Dan had always brought in soy dogs or falafel for their meal so that they could keep kosher. And essentially, Wendy said, you don't have to do that anymore. Just feed them what the other kids get. Dan was rightfully incensed. When he spoke to the boys about it, he found out that they had also been fed bacon and shrimp by the Adelsons and that Donna had been bad-mouthing him to his own children, which, again, are other things that are off-limits when you're kosher. No kid needs bacon and shrimp. They're intentionally doing that to piss him off. It seems intentional with also the cheeseburgers from McDonald's. Yes, yes. Because there's other options. There are. Yeah. If you want to do, you could get a chicken tenders and French fries and you're not You're in Miami. They have (laughs) incredible food and you're going to McDonald's and getting a cheeseburger for them. Yeah. It seems like, especially because it's with kids, they're going to point it out and be like, I want to get a Happy Meal with a cheeseburger like grandma gave me. They're going to tell you. But this was not a smart move for negotiating a happy custody arrangement especially given that Wendy was pressing Dan to allow the kids and herself to move to Miami so that she could take a job there, which she did. She had a better paying job offer in Miami, and I can understand why she would want to take it. But given that you're flouting 
all of the rules that you made a decision as a family, how you were going to raise your kids, and the way you blindsided him in the divorce, I don't think you're setting yourself up in a good place to negotiate this. So Dan's like, absolutely not. That's like somewhere between a seven and 10 hour drive. I would say no, too. You're not taking my kids that far away from me. So Wendy did try to appeal through the courts, but it was immediately denied. They said, absolutely not. The kids stay with Dan or they stay in Tallahassee because this is where it makes sense is where they have community. The Adelsons became increasingly obsessed with getting Wendy and the boys to Miami. Ruth Markell wrote the following about the contentious situation. The situation intensified as numerous attempts by Wendy to relocate to South Florida were blocked. Donna felt caged in and continued sending Wendy strong emails. Donna would try anything to gain control over the children and get them away from Dan. Donna became obsessed with her hatred of Dan and kept on coming up with new plots for Wendy to move to the Miami area. We would later see an email Donna had written on June 25, 2013, which encouraged Wendy to use her acting skills. She wrote, tell Dan that the children will be baptized in the Catholic Church as long as he wants you to remain in Tallahassee. In one particularly unhinged email, Donna referred to dressing the children in Hitler youth costumes to upset Gibbers, the name she and Wendy used derogatorily to refer to Dan. She advised Wendy to tell him, you wanted me in Tallahassee, my children to fit into this Bible belt. Donna even documented to Wendy how the family was prepared to offer Dan $1 million to allow Wendy to move to South Florida using a split of funds between Wendy herself, her parents, and her brother, Charlie. The divorce was finalized in July of 2013, but Dan and Wendy were back in court by March of 2014. After reports that Donna was telling the boys that their father was stupid, as well as other insults, Dan filed a motion to prevent Donna from having unsupervised time with his children to protect them from disparaging comments about their father. A court hearing was scheduled to address these issues, but it was delayed and ultimately never happened. Dan was murdered before it could. Andy, I could not be more excited to share today's sponsor with our listeners. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. You can learn how to cook with Gordon Ramsay, improve your interior design skills with my favorite, Kelly Worsler, or learn the science of problem solving with Bill Nye. With over 180 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. Masterclass classes are accessible however you want to watch, via phone, web, or smart TV. Each class is broken out into individual lessons that are usually about 10 minutes long and are supported with additional materials to help members learn. These are cinema-quality classes that give you unparalleled access to a renowned instructor and annual membership starts at just $180 a year. I've loved a lot of classes on Masterclass, but there is one new one that I am more excited for than just about any other. It's a class with FBI Special Agent John Douglas. He was an absolute pioneer of modern profiling as the chief of the Bureau's National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. This is the guy who inspired Silence of the Lambs and Mindhunter. I know y'all know him. On his new class, he's going to bring us into the interrogation room with infamous criminals like Charles Manson and John Wayne Gacy. 
He breaks down how he applied his methods to interview the most notorious serial killers and how you can use them every day to better understand human behavior. This is going to be such an amazing class and is an incredible demonstration of what makes Masterclass so unique. We highly recommend you go check it out. This holiday, give one annual membership and get one free. Go to masterclass.com slash lovemurder today. That's masterclass.com slash lovemurder. Terms apply. It's hard to imagine losing a loved one, a wife, a husband, a child. For many, it is their biggest fear. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast that tells the stories of often overlooked and unsolved missing persons cases. Every week, host Marissa Jones dives into a new case, sharing the details of their mysterious disappearance from interviews with family, friends, law enforcement, and even suspects in an effort to reveal the truth. The Vanished has even aided in getting long overdue arrests through their in-depth interviews. Marissa reminds listeners of the human behind the headline and aims to help family members find their vanished loved one, or at least a sense of peace. Andy, you know that one of the things we care most about here on Love Murder is the way we treat the stories of victims. It's always our goal to make sure that they, and not the criminals around them, are at the center of the story. But we tend not to focus on unsolved cases. I love that Marissa and The Vanished apply the same ethos to a very important category of overlooked cases and help bring light to more information that can really help the victims' families. Follow The Vanished on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. While shadowy plots and plans were conspiring against him, Dan had no idea and was moving on with his life. He had met and begun dating an NYU professor named Amy and was genuinely excited for the future after his family life had imploded almost two years before. Wendy had began dating as well, and she had started seeing another FSU professor named Jeff Lacoste. The fight about the boys continued, however. Early on, Wendy and Dan had decided on a private Jewish education for their children. But in July of 2014, Dan discovered that Wendy had enrolled their eldest son in a non-denominational charter school without his approval. On the morning of July 18th, 2014, Dan took his boys to daycare as usual. Then he went to the gym, after which he called his uncle Lazar, who was more like a grandfather figure to him to wish him a happy 97th birthday. And that's essentially um, Ruth talks about in her book. But her father died at a very young age and her uncle stepped in to essentially be a father figure. So while it's more like his great uncle, this was absolutely the grandfather figure in his life and the father figure to Ruth. So he wished his essentially grandfather a happy 97th birthday and then he spoke on the phone to Ruth as he drove home and this was a ritual of Dan and Ruth's they always spoke when he was either driving home from work or from the gym which makes perfect sense to me for like a loving son who's constantly busy totally (laughs) yeah like it's like a perfect way to arrange your day where you're like I'm making sure I'm getting my mom call in but I'm Also, it's while I'm doing something else and I'm multitasking. It seems very in line with who Dan was, which was that guy that was literally doing a million things at all points every day. It also it reminds me of you and me, too. It is. We always just call each other on the phone just to make sure we can connect. It's so true. The other thing that I think really, really spoke to me after listening to Over My Dead Body was people who said that they had known Dan just for a little while. 
and how warm and loving and like how huggy he was, how after exchanging emails with somebody in like a professional setting after a few weeks, he just started going XOXO and signing off like hugs and kisses, Dan. That spoke to me because that's very much the type of person I am, too. So anyway, so he's, he always talked to his mom on the way home. But that particular day, he told his mom that he had to cut the chat short because there was a teacher that was beeping in from the charter school. Being the responsible father that he was, he did not outright just say they can't go to this charter school. He said, I want to do my own research. And he had been connected with a teacher at the charter school so that he could ask him questions about the content of what they were teaching and their educational policies. So this teacher called him in, and and as he was almost home, he took the call. Unfortunately for Ruth, hours later, she just gets off his phone. She's like, he's like, okay, love you, Ma. See you later. Call you later. Bye. And hours later, she would receive the phone call that every parent fears. Her beloved son, Daniel Markell, was dead. So Dan had taken the call with a teacher and then he had started pulling into his driveway. And I've read a couple different things that he said, but this teacher reported that he said something like, there's somebody I, I don't know in my driveway after he had pulled in and then there's someone next to me or something like that. And then the next thing the teacher heard was two loud gunshots, muffled voices and labored breathing. Could you imagine? That's terrifying terrifying. So he asked Dan a couple times if he was okay. There was no response. And so he hung up the phone and he called 911. So the teacher called 911. Meanwhile, one of Dan's neighbors also heard the gunshots and they came out of their house and they saw a white or silver Prius peeling out of Dan's driveway. The neighbor called 911 when he found Dan bleeding shot twice through his car window and even through his glasses. So Dan was still in his car. He was clearly in a bad way. And the neighbor ended up calling 911 several times over and over and over again because it took emergency medical services 20 agonizing minutes to reach the still alive Dan who was bleeding out at this point. Not their best work. Not their best work. We oftentimes applaud EMS or the police or whoever for getting to a scene. I mean, we've heard things as like short as three minutes, four minutes, 20 minutes. That is a life or death window. Yeah. The fact that the neighbor had to call several times is just. I would be so frantic if I was that neighbor. Oh, my God. Too. It wasn't until 5.30 p.m. that Ruth and Phil found out that their only son had been shot in the head twice by seemingly a stranger. One of the bullets was lodged in Dan's brain. They were told that it was likely that if he survived, he would be a vegetable. They made immediate plans to fly to Tallahassee and be with their son, but it was too late. At two in the morning, they found out that Dan had passed away at the hospital. Ruth was still with her 97-year-old father figure who loved Dan deeply, very deeply, when she got the horrific news and she had to tell him what was happening. When she told him, the old man said forcibly in Yiddish, the in-laws. Ruth said that after this shocking news, it seemed like the light had gone out in Lazar. He had survived the Holocaust, but he only lived 
for four months after his grandson was murdered. Meanwhile, police immediately began to chase down leads on the Prius and interview Dan's closest friends and foes. At this point, they had already ruled out burglary gone wrong as his house had not been broken into and nothing was removed from the car. It was pretty clear that this was a targeted hit. Despite her father figure's proclamation, Ruth did not immediately think that this was about the divorce. The Adelsons were a headache, and it sounds like a handful, but they were family. They knew this family. They had joined together that fateful, non-kosher day at the reception hall ballroom. They didn't think that they were capable of this. She thought that it might be a follower of Prof's blog because there had been someone who had gotten into a big fight in the comment section, and Dan was not backing down. And she knew her son well enough to know that he had an extremely strong personality and that it could have rubbed somebody the wrong way. And you never know. People will surprise you. I mean, there we talk about it all the time, people who are killed in road rage incidents. Oh, my God. I know. All the time. So she was like, well, maybe it's something like this. He said something. He got into a fight about something. And somebody just snapped and killed him. And that was the only thing that she could possibly think about because there was really no reason why anyone would want Dan dead. And you can't fathom that it would actually be the in-laws. No. Or the woman that had sworn to love your son and was the mother of your grandsons. Of course. It would not compute. Wendy Adelson was brought into police custody and she was told that her ex-husband was dead. And now this is all recorded. So you have the audio on the podcast we're talking about. Also, any crime programs about this has the videos of her being told that Dan has been shot and killed. So she sobbed fairly convincingly. They talk about it on Over My Dead Body. In one of the later episodes, podcaster Matt Chair, he says he thinks that she was genuine. He believes that this seemed like a very true and genuine response to finding out that her ex-husband was murdered. She's genuinely scared of getting caught. <laughs> maybe, maybe that might be the case. So they have Wendy's reaction to hearing the news on videotape. They also have her calling her mother to tell her mother that Dan's been killed. And she tells her mom and then immediately she tells somebody that she's relieved. Well, she seems relieved that her mother was surprised. And she's like, that's one less thing for me to worry about because she insinuates to the police that the only reason she could think anyone would want Dan dead was that he had not been very nice to her. He had been emotionally abusive, she claims, and they had gone through a bad divorce. And so she was crying and saying, maybe someone did this for me, even though I don't know about it, thinking that it will be better for me. And so when she gets off that phone call with her mom, she's saying she was totally surprised. She didn't know. And I'm so relieved that she didn't know it's not her. So they're kind of pushing her to who would care about you so much that they would want to murder Dan. And she said, well, you know, my, my brother, Charlie, her middle brother, has joked about hiring a hitman. But the big joke is that he ultimately decided to buy me a TV instead because a TV was cheaper. So she said, yes, but he would never really do that. In fact, that very morning, she had had a TV repairman out to fix the TV that he had purchased her. 
And she had even said something to the TV repairman about that joke, had kind of like passed on that same extremely unfunny joke. Also, your TV's like broken already? Yeah. I don't know about this whole thing. So that's what she said she was up to that morning in any case. But she said there's no way my family would ever do anything like this. And they're all in Miami. They couldn't do it anyway. So if not Wendy's family, then who else would care enough about Wendy to kill for her? Suspicion then turned to Jeff Lacoste, Wendy's boyfriend, and he was hauled in for questioning. Now, Jeff had a solid alibi. He had been traveling. He was like hundreds of miles away when this occurred. And he was released, but he came back a couple weeks later to report that he and Wendy had ended their relationship and that he believed the police should be looking at Wendy and specifically her brother, Charlie, for the murder. Jeff reported that Wendy had often joked about her family getting a hitman and that Charlie had taken Wendy out to dinner to celebrate Dan's murder. It's disgusting. Disgusting. He also said strangely that at this dinner, Wendy had vomited on the table, though it's never clear if she drank too much or what happened to cause this. I mean, I'm guessing that one. She has denied this. She ate a bad clam. That's like the very tiniest karma fairy. Ping, bad clam. <laughs> the entry level karma fairy yes. just hits you with a bad clam. <laughs> Immediate puking. So Jeff was wanted to tell them this, but he was also concerned that they might be trying to set him up for it. Because it was interesting that she said, maybe someone who cared about me would think this was better for me, but then immediately said, but it couldn't be my family. So who else cares about you, Wendy? All of your fans of your writing. I did see a comment. You guys also, a good source of updates in this case is the Justice for Dan Facebook page. It has like six or 7,000 people following it. And I think it was on there or there was another one about a trial that I'm following in the same case. And somebody said, do you think that the Adelsons have read Ruth's book? And somebody commented, oh, for sure. It's Wendy's book no one has ever read. Oh, my God. Iconic. So Jeff was like, look at them. They did something. I want nothing to do with this. And I want nothing to do with her or her family ever again. Yeah, bye. So during this entire process now, Ruth and Phil and their daughter, Shelly, are trying to figure out what the hell they can do. They're in in Canada. When this first happened, they flew down to Tallahassee. And Ruth's number one goal was to be there for her grandsons and comfort them in this terrible time. And yet, other than there was one very quick memorial, it happened, I think, only like 48 hours after Dan was shot at his synagogue, which had tons of people come. After that, she was trying to arrange times to see her grandsons. And only, I think it was a day or two after this memorial, while they're still in Tallahassee, Ruth reaches out to Wendy and she goes, okay, so I'm going to come over at noon today. And Wendy says, no, they're busy. You can't come over. She's like, they're like three and four. What could they possibly be doing that they're busy right now? So she says, it's fine. She understands Wendy's grieving as well. She's trying to figure out the new normal without her boy's dad around. She's okay. How about tomorrow? Tomorrow, can I see them at noon? And she said, yes, tomorrow's fine. We'll see you tomorrow, Ruth. Well, they had been over to Wendy's house like a day or two previously. I think it was after the memorial. And she had noticed that 
there wasn't a lot of furniture. There wasn't a lot of toys. It wasn't like your typical, like, Andy, if you walk into either one of our houses right now, toys everywhere. Yes. It just seemed very odd that there wasn't toys everywhere. It, didn't, it seemed like everything was very Spartan. So the next day when she's told she was could, could see the kids, she calls that morning and she's like, okay, just double checking. I can still come over at noon. And she goes, actually, Ruth, I'm sorry, but for safety reasons, we've relocated to Miami. This is like days after the murder. Days after the murder, she's already taking the kids to Miami. So shady. Like those kids are the piece of your son left and you're not letting her see them. The gut punch of lying and then also obviously you don't move to Miami overnight that she knew it and she didn't say, would you like to come say goodbye before we leave? Just robbing Ruth and Phil and Shelly of the opportunity to see their family before she took them away. But there's nothing that Ruth could do except for try to remain close to Wendy and try to stay on her good side because she had no legal rights to see those children. Well, the investigation chugged away, aided by a $100,000 reward raised by Dan's friends and colleagues. And Wendy continued to alienate the boys further and further away from Ruth and Phil and Dan's family and really anything that had anything to do with Dan. The Markell family was especially slapped in the face when Wendy emailed Ruth to let her know that she had legally changed the boy's last name from Markell to Adelson. This infuriated me. And that even going further, they had given Benjamin, the eldest child, a Hebrew middle name that was meant to honor Ruth's late mother. So Dan's grandmother who sounded like a remarkable woman from what I read in Ruth's book. And they had also removed that middle name. So they took anything that had anything to do with the Markells away from those two boys. And even despite this betrayal of Dan's memory, Ruth stayed as close as possible to Wendy so she would not be denied access to Dan's children. She had to bite her tongue and go along with all of this or else it was no grandkids. In Florida at the time, grandparents had absolutely no legal recourse to get visitation if the children have a living, what they term as a natural parent. So if Wendy decided that the Markles could not see the boys, that was well within her legal right and the Markels couldn't do anything about it. I just think it would also take such a mature person to be struggling with this grief and this frustration and then be being treated like this and still be taking the higher road in order for the greater good. While walking a tightrope with the Adelsons, Ruth and Phil were also dealing with a long investigation with little information on how it was moving forward. And of course, their tremendous grief. There's a part where she writes about thinking about her son and how she hasn't fully realized she's not actually going through the stages of grief because Ruth was also, she has a master's in social work and she's helped people in emergency situations before. And she was aware that she wasn't grieving the same way because it was almost impossible. Like it was, it was almost still denial. It was, she was imagining him. And this is the part that got me. I remember we were in Uruguay and I was listening to the book while I was walking and I almost started crying because she talked about she could just see him as an 18-month-old little boy. And that's almost exactly how old Gus is, how old our babies are. And thinking about him 
growing up someday and being murdered just shook me. So yeah, so she's trying to do all of this at the same time and be present in the investigation and understand what's going on. And it's just overwhelming. I can't even imagine it. And then finally, at the end of May 2016, the Markell's attorney told them that there was serious evidence and important developments in Dan's case. And in fact, someone was about to be arrested. That person was a low-level criminal from Miami named Sigfrido Garcia. He had gotten in trouble for some drug-related offenses. Nothing violent as far as I could see. The Markels naturally had no idea who this man was, and he had absolutely no discernible connection to Dan. Following the lead of looking for the Prius, the police had launched a painstaking search using security footage from Tallahassee's public bus system, as well as GPS tracking from SunPass, which is the kind of like it's the Florida version of Easy Pass, or gosh, I don't know what you have it in different areas, but it's, it's essentially the highway toll responder thing. Videos revealed that the Prius had been stalking Dan from the moment he had dropped his children off at daycare. So when they pieced together all of the bus footage, as well as I'm sure storefronts from the area, they could see this Prius tailing him to the daycare, tailing him from the daycare to the gym, and from the gym back to Dan's house which is after he pulled into his driveway, was when they got out of the Prius and shot him twice through the window and then took off. So scary that they were following him with the kids. In the car. Yeah. And it's just chilling. I wouldn't think about it at all. No, and a Prius is so like, just seems like not a sus car, you know? No. Yeah, we're not talking about one of those creepy vans that you're like, "Uh uh-oh, somebody's stuck in that. Yeah, with the tinted windows. Yes, no, that's not what we're talking about. So they watched the Prius follow Dan everywhere, and then they were able to also track the Prius on its trip back to Miami. They were able to zoom in on the Prius's license plate at one point, and it turned out to be a rental car from a place in Miami. Through rental records, they were able to determine the identities of Sigfrido Garcia, who went by the nickname Tuto, and his accomplice, his childhood best friend, who was a member of the Latin Kings gang named Luis Rivera. Through cell phone records, they were able to place the men at Dan's house on the day of the murder. As well as there had been another trip that looked like a failed attempt, because this was the second time that these two men had gone from Miami to Tallahassee. But it seems that this time the hit was successful. Luis and Sigfrido were arrested, but what could have possibly been the motive for two men from Miami to drive several hours to kill a law professor in Tallahassee? That answer seemed to materialize an arrest affidavit that was made public in early June of 2016. A co-conspirator and a person of interest was named. Her name was Catherine Katie Magbanawa. She was Sigfrido's longtime girlfriend and the mother of his small children, She had also been dating none other than Charlie Adelson at the time and prior to the murder. Yeah, I see a connection. Yeah, not only that, she had received several checks from the Adelson Institute, the family's dental practice. It just, it kills me that it's like an expense. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. So... It appears that she worked in nightlife and she also worked at various 
health type clinics in more of a receptionist type capacity, it seemed like, or assistant type capacity. However, she met Charlie while he was a visiting periodontist at an office where she had worked. It doesn't seem like he actually ever employed her. She has no real records of employment with Adelson Institute. So why the hell were they paying her and issuing her checks? Hmm. So definitely everyone should listen to Over My Dead Body's episode called The Maestro. Do you remember this? Yeah, his license plate. <laughs> yes. Okay. So they do a great job of exploring Charlie's character. And they also have, the police did end up tapping all of the phone lines for many of the people involved in this. And so they have Charlie on these phone conversations that you can hear on Over My Dead Body. And he is just such a dick. He's such a tool. Such a tool. First of all, you can't nickname yourself. He named himself the maestro. He did indeed. We all know someone like this. Who gave themselves their own nickname? Yeah, throughout life, we all know someone who coined- Oh, yeah, throughout life. I was like, wait, who? No, not like currently (laughs) in our life. Yeah. I just mean like we've all met someone like this. like try to make it stick and it's like it's not, no one wants to call you that. It's not happening. It's like Stifler from American Pie. The stiff. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, no. No. And so, yeah. So he had, like Andy said, a vanity license plate that said maestro. So on these recorded phone conversations, he is not just a tool, but he is talking about illegal steroid use and telling people how they should cycle their steroids, which ones they can stay on. He is giving them advice about guns, legal or otherwise. He was also just generally unsavory, egocentric, and everything that's wrong with men when we complain about men. Didn't he have like some super fancy car, like a Ferrari or something as well? Yes, he had a Ferrari with Maestro as the license plate. Was it yellow as well? I think it was like yellow or bright orange or something very, very flashy. Annoying. (laughs) Yeah, and there's one clip on Over My Dead Body where he's talking to a friend about Wendy's dating prospects which seemed like Charlie and his infinite wisdom and hotness did not think it was going to go so smoothly, at least based on what Charlie thought of women. He said, quote, she's not 25. She's 37 with two kids. You know what I'd say if you tried to hook me up with a 37-year-old Victoria's Secret model with two kids? Thank you, but no thank you. Bottom of the barrel here. And this guy is 40. Yeah. And he would say no to a 37-year-old Victoria's Secret model because she's over 25. Sure. You pig. I'm sure it's really the loss of of single Victoria's Secret mother models. I'm sure they really wish they got a chance with a periodontist with a little penis. They're a a little steroid dick. Oh, it's so little. Yeah, class act, class act. In the affidavit that listed Katie Magbanoa as a co-conspirator, it also listed Charlie and Wendy's mother, Donna, as unindicted co-conspirators as well. Now, the Markells are getting all this information from this affidavit that was released. So this is head spinning. Well, I'm sure at this point there was suspicion to have it laid out so plainly. And the affidavit even said that they believed that the motivation was to allow Wendy and the boys to relocate without any legal issues or Dan fighting for the kids. Horrifying. It's a knife in the gut. Yes. It's really a knife in the gut. 
So where did the cops end up making this connection? The accomplice, Luis Rivera, was actually already serving some time for gang-related crime when these arrests occurred. So he was already in prison. Both men faced the death penalty, so Luis decided to talk in order to get a deal. He claimed that Katie Magbanoa was the one who called all of the shots in this arrangement. Everything was filtered through her. The money came through her. And he said the goal was to kill the lawyer so the lady could get her kids back. That's not even accurate. Yeah. Luis said that they had been paid collectively $100,000, which they split, and that he did mention that what was unusual about the money that they had received was that it was stapled together in $100 bills. Not rubber bands, but staples. Charlie's ex-girlfriend would later tell investigators that Charlie had a habit of stapling bundles of cash that he kept in a safe in his apartment. That's so weird. Very weird and very specific. So they had the hitman's accomplice's story, but they needed more, especially in regards to the Adelson family's involvement. So they got a court order to tap their phone lines and began tailing them with surveillance technology. It was soon clear that over-recorded phone conversation that Katie, Charlie, and Mother Donna were speaking in code. TV was one of the codes, which, wink, wink, goes back to their disgusting joke. Also, pot-bellied pig was one, which I believe had something to do with the cops being on to them. And there was just some other strange language involved on these calls. Charlie very clearly knew that their phone lines were being tapped because there's conversations where he's talking to somebody and says... Anything you wouldn't want law enforcement to hear, don't say it on this line. Yeah, well, he's probably used to it because he's doing illegal shit all the time. Probably, probably. He's like selling illegal steroids and guns. Like, So getting into this, they found evidence that in addition to the cash that Luis claimed that they had been paid, Katie had also been issued over $44,000 in checks from the Adelson Institute, despite, like I said, not having any real record of employment. Or no evidence from other people who worked there that she was really an employee. There was also evidence that Charlie had given Katie several expensive gifts, a luxury car that had belonged to his father, Harvey. I believe it was Lexus. And he had also uh, paid for a boob job for her from a doctor who is very famous in Miami for boob jobs, who goes by the name Dr. Boobner. Uh, yeah. And he was even recorded on the phone, offering to sign a boat over to her. <sighs> so she's getting a lot of shit if she did not set up a hit. After Luis and Siegfriedo's arrest, the police knew that tensions would be high, so they set up a sting operation to try to push Katie and the Adelsons into revealing something over these tapped phone lines. This is what they called the bump. That was this, this sting operation. They had an undercover cop approach Donna pretending to be a member of Luis's extended family who essentially said, you know, you took care of Sigfredo and Katie. You didn't take care of Luis. We need some more money for his family now that he's been put away. Now, this did make Donna panic. Yep. And it sent them all in a tizzy. Now, this is two years after the actual murder. And now there was a flurry of phone calls from Donna to Charlie, then Charlie to Katie. And Donna mentioned something about somebody approached me because she can't say on this phone line because they know it's getting taped. 
something about your ex-girlfriend and about some business. And he's like, well, does this have to do with just me or all of us? And she says, all of us. And then out of all of Charlie's millions of ex-girlfriends, the only one he calls is Katie. Yeah. So they all seem to be frantically trying to figure out if this guy that says he's somehow related to Luis and wants five grand, he wants some payment for everything that Luis is going through, if he's legit and just blackmailing them, or if he's actually a cop digging for information. I can't believe they even thought of that. I mean... They're not dumb people. I mean, they're acting very dumb right now, but these are well-educated people who should have known a whole lot better. Yeah. But as we've always talked about, there's a difference between book smarts and street smarts. But they were street smart enough to know that it possibly could be an undercover agent. So officers tailed Katie and Charlie to a restaurant called Dolce Vita, where they could be witnessed having a very tense discussion. Unfortunately, due to the crowd noise in the restaurant, the surveillance equipment had a very hard time picking up exactly what they were saying at this meeting. Two things were for sure. They were nervous. And the second thing was is they were not going to the police. If some random dude walked up to you and tried to blackmail you and was demanding money for some sort of payment and you were innocent, it seems pretty likely you'd go to the authorities. 100%. Unless uh, you had something to hide. At the end of the operation, with the financials and Luis's testimony, they had enough to arrest Katie Magbanoa for soliciting murder. This was also, I have to say, it's fair to say at this point, that there was an outcry because it seemed pretty clear who the genesis of this was. If it's not Wendy, it's at least Charlie. Exactly, and they're arresting Katie. And they're arresting only the people of color in this case, not the wealthy white family. So that was a big outcry at this time, too, for very good reason. After the affidavit listed Donna and Charlie as co-conspirators and the motivation, like I said, being to remove obstacles that stood in the way of Wendy and the children moving to Miami, Ruth and the Markell family were very obviously concerned about Benjamin and Lincoln. Yeah, it's out there. It's out there that Charlie had something to do with this. And he was a daily part of those kids' lives. Donna was babysitting them all the time. Terrifying. And there's proof that she has something to do with this. So they have no idea what these children are being exposed to, which is their number one concern. But their other concern is that they've already been listed in a leaked affidavit as people of interest that could potentially be arrested. And Wendy's not that far off. So what happens to the boys when all the Adelsons get arrested. Where are they going to go? And so Ruth began to get very concerned that the boys would be placed in foster care should the Adelsons get arrested. So she, at that point, which I think very wisely, reached out to the Jewish Adoption and Family Care Options Center in South Florida to inquire just how she could legally set up an emergency plan in which if these children, in the case of these arrests, were taken from the home, that it would already be on file, that the Markels should be contacted, and they can come and take care of the kids so they don't have to go into the system. Two things. The foresight to be able to, like, while still trying to figure out how to grieve, to think of this and make all the actions to execute it is unbelievable. And then could you imagine being someone that works at that adoption care center listening to this story? Oh, my gosh. They were so sympathetic. They were so sympathetic and willing to work with them. And I agree. I mean, I personally, just based on how I do things in my mental state, 
when things happen, sometimes I like shut down a little bit and I'm so impressed. And I know you're like this, Andy, and it's probably why we're best friends that other people, when they face adversity, go into the superhuman mode of just arranging and making shit happen and thinking of all the contingencies. And I'm always in awe of that. I mean, I just, I can't imagine in the position that she was in. That's remarkable. Well, it gets worse though, because she starts working with what they call JAFCO, which is this center. And JAFCO and her are in conversations with the state attorney because then it would help if they know that these arrests are coming down the pike, then they can make sure the Markels are in place to take the kids. However, an email to the state attorney gets leaked and it makes Wendy believe that Ruth and Phil are going to go for full custody, that regardless, it has nothing to do with the arrest, that they're just going to start fighting for custody of the boys, which was not Ruth's intention. It wasn't. the No, it wasn't. But like they should be with Ruth. I mean, they absolutely should be. But it seems likely Wendy's an intelligent woman that she likely understood that that wasn't the case, but it gave her finally a reason to fully once and for all cut off all contact between Benjamin and Lincoln and their paternal grandparents and family members because Shelly was included in this. So these poor boys were only about three or four when Dan was murdered and they have now absolutely no tie to their father, their father's memory, their father's family. For Ruth and Phil, I can't say that it's as painful as the murder of your son, but it's right up there. It's very damn close to have to realize that you will never, ever hold or speak to your son. You're never going to watch him achieve the way you they had since he was a small child. And then to take that away from his only living remembrance, his only legacy. I mean, he had a big legacy academically, but his living legacies who were there, who look like him and talk like him and act like him to also say you will never, ever, ever see them or hold them or let them know how much you love them. Horrifying. It's horrifying. And it's like, I know that there's like, I don't think anyone would say this, but people will be like, well, you know, there's a chance they're not dead. There's a chance that they'll turn 18 and they'll want to hang out with their grandparents. But in the interim, you don't know what they're being told in their most formative years. Exactly. Those are the years that you like really remember having an amazing time with your grandparents too. You know, like yes. when you're 18, it's like, I mean, obviously the Adelsons are all arrested. The Markells are going to be their only family. We hope so. Knock on wood. We're not quite there yet, Andy. <laughs> I like that you're just like, they're all going to be arrested. <laughs> Every single one of them. <laughs> Every single one of them. Uh. So yeah, I mean, Ruth was trying desperately to contact Wendy and be like, no, that's not, you got the whole idea wrong. That's not what we would do. Jafco even issued a public statement saying that this was the intention. This is what we were setting up. Any reports to the contrary are wrong. Yeah. Do you see this affidavit with your mom and brother listed as co-conspirators? Like, yeah. what do you expect me to do? Wendy didn't relent. It would be six long years before Ruth would see her grandchildren again. The fight for justice for Dan cost the Markells a hefty price financially. And we had talked about this with our um, bonus episode with Dr. Jan Canty, the price of homicide, that people don't realize that, yes, it's this emotional cost, but it's also they're having to pay for attorneys. They're having to 
fly back and forth to Florida from Canada. They're having to pay for hotel bills. They're having to put their lives on the line. Like they're still working. All of the Markels were working and they're losing out on time being spent employed and making money or projects. This is so all encompassing and draining. But then worst of all was the actual emotional toll and the loss of contact with their grandchildren, their only sons, only sons. Luis Rivera made a formal deal with the state and was sentenced to a total of 19 years behind bars, including the time that he was serving for his original sentence. So I think they tacked on like seven years, which Ruth said she was very happy with. Like some people were saying he was involved with this and he only technically got seven years for this. And it was his information, though, that led to the other arrests, which Ruth said that she felt like was a very good trait. Yes, I remember specifically her mentioning that in the podcast. Yes. And I agree with her wholeheartedly. I would feel the same way if it was one of my children, too. Whatever it takes to get justice, especially given that he was essentially the driver in this, I'd still, like, not like the guy, for sure. If he's the least one who had anything to do with the plot, and it's his testimony who helped put away at least some of these people, then I would be happy with the seven years. So Luis agreed, as part of this deal, to testify at Sigfrido and Katie's trial, and the state decided to try the couple together. The Markells looked forward to the trial and sentencing of the man who had fired a bullet into their son's brain, but motions by the defense kept pushing the trial further off and further off, which is a common tactic of defense attorneys because witnesses change their minds, they forget details, they move away, and they don't care enough to come back. Then you can also say, well, how do you remember it happened six years ago versus having it immediately happen? Everyone's still involved and there's still media heat and attention behind the case. Yeah, there should be a limit on how far you can push it back, though. It's not fair. There might be a limit because obviously neither of us are attorneys. I do believe there has to be some sort of limit. I know at some point the judge says, stop it. No, no more. We're not doing this anymore. You cannot push it out anymore. We're going to trial. But yeah, this period of waiting was just horrific for Ruth. And she wrote in her book about the cost of this experience that this is what it's like to live a life sentence. Waiting is the biggest part of that profile, filled with uncertainty, angst, powerlessness, suffering, and trauma. During the post-arrest period, along with the numerous preparations and dates for hearings, I visited the Fort Lauderdale area for my winter break, as I always had. The strain of being in Florida and not seeing my grandchildren, who were only miles away, was horrible. It was during this time that I resolved I would not allow myself to become accustomed to not seeing my grandchildren in Florida. The situation was unacceptable, and I refused to accept it as a fact of life. The pursuit of visitation with my grandsons propelled me at the same time as my quest for justice for Dan's murder. Siegfriedo and Katie's joint trial finally began in September of 2019. And what is really interesting is that Katie had been offered an immunity deal in exchange for information. That means that she could have gotten off basically with nothing, with like a slap on the wrist, if she had testified against the Adelsons, specifically Charlie. And she said no, which I cannot imagine an attorney advising her to do especially given that it seems like her husband, well, common-law husband, Siegfriedo, and father of her children, who are very small children, is likely going to go away. And if she takes this immunity deal, she can raise her kids. 
But she says no, which made many people speculate on who was actually paying her attorney's bills. There was some speculation that the Adelsons were paying Katie's. I mean, that would make sense, bills. wouldn't it? Yes. Because it does not seem to me a good choice to have turned down that immunity deal. And they couldn't get any proof of that? Not that I know of. I feel like if there was proof, it would have come out by now. I don't know. I think later on, she has a public defender. I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Later on. So at the trial, the defense said essentially that Luis Rivera was not only the one who pulled the trigger, but was the one who masterminded all of this. And Katie's connection to Charlie was just some sort of red herring. It didn't matter. It was immaterial. It was all Luis. Luis is the one who did it. He's the one who turned evidence to try to get out ahead. It was he said, she said. It was Luis and not having anything to do with Sigfrido or Katie, which just defies rationality. So after two weeks, the trial came to a conclusion. The jurors, however, did not, at least about Katie Magbanawa. While they found Sigfrido guilty and he was ultimately sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, LWAP, the jury was not sure what to do with Katie. There was some confusion about whether Katie was a principal of the crime or a participant of the crime. It seems that the judge had issued some relatively confusing instructions for the jury about how they were to determine Katie's guilt in this case and that they had come back for clarification about exactly that wording and what that meant and still could not come to a determination about Katie in regards to that specific statement. And as a result of the confusion, two of the jurors said that given the guidance they had received, they could not in good conscience vote to convict. Well, 10 out of 12 of the other jurors had wanted to find her guilty. As a result, a mistrial was declared in Katie's case. While Luis Rivera and Sigfredo Garcia were now behind bars, Katie, Charlie, and the Adelsons still had not been brought to justice. Ruth said that the mistrial was a major setback and that the justice outcome felt frozen in time. Yeah, but if she was charged with guilty, the Adelsons like, would have been out scot-free, right? Or would they have prosecuted them after? I mean, they can still keep investigating and pulling on the thread. Because I remember that's what I was so nervous about. I was like, if they do, because I think their confusion about her involvement is and how involved she is and if she's the one that needs to be put behind bars is valid for a jury to debate. But I was just so nervous the whole time that if she went away, then they were just going to keep those three in jail and be like, okay, that's it. We put them in jail. I think that they could have. I think that a reason why Ruth wrote this book and she wants to help other survivors of homicide and be advocates for grandparent visitation and circumstances like that, I think those are the primary reasons. But I'm sure another reason is to keep Dan's case in the public view to make Over My Dead Body go to number one again, to come on our show and get more awareness because the more people that know what Charlie definitely and potentially the other Adelsons did, the more pressure there will be on the state's attorney to do something about it. So even if she goes away, 
that doesn't mean it's game over for the Adelsons, which we're going to get into. Don't worry. There's more answers. Because <laughs> this is kind of where over my dead body left off, which I was just like, <laughs> yeah. So it's still going, guys. But we, we have at least more answers now. And honestly, a lot of stuff came out while Ruth was publishing her book. She had to just put a new ending in that the publisher stuck in very quickly because there are still so many updates going on to this day. Well, unfortunately, about how the wheels of justice move slowly, they move even slower because of COVID-19. So that joint trial had happened in late 2019, I think September 2019. And then, of course, they're going to retry Katie, but then COVID hits in early 2020, which just put a stick in everything at that point, in everyone's lives forever all over the place. However, that wasn't the only thing that was keeping Ruth and the Markels busy. A chance meeting at a hair salon on Ruth's 75th birthday led her to a woman named Karen Halpern Cyphers, who got the ball rolling on initiating a new bill to change grandparent visitation laws in Florida. With her help, as well as the assistance of the Markels' attorneys, Ruth lobbied for the Florida State Legislature to pass a grandparent visitation bill called the Markel Act. It was created to give a new access point for grandparents to be able to legally petition the courts for visitation in unique and tragic cases like the Markels. Well, very happily, I can tell you that the bill passed earlier this year. Amazing. So I think it passed in like maybe March, March or April. And when the news broke about the bill passing, Wendy reached out to Ruth and Phil. I think she must have seen that the writing was on the wall. Come hell or high water, they were going to get to see their grandsons, even if they had to do it legally. And pass legislation. And pass legislation in order to see. That is a grandmother's love. I know you got some grandmas listening at home and they're like, I would do that to see my grandbabies. Pass that legislation. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. So basically, I think she saw the writing was on the wall. So she reached out to them and she said, fair enough. It's time. It's been six years. Let's make this cordial. I'll invite you to come down. We'll have a nice visit. And it was wonderful. They did. They went. They had a warm and loving reunion. I think the biggest head spinning thing is, though, that six years when kids are little, it's so different. They went from babies and little boys to young men or like adolescents. It's just different. But they said that they were so proud of the young men. I mean, they're teenagers that these boys were becoming. So it was a very heartwarming reunion. But in a shocking coincidence, on the very same day that Ruth and Phil are flying back from this reunion and coming back from Florida, they land in Canada to the news that Charlie Adelson was arrested on April 21st of this year, 2022. Amazing. According to a WFSU article by Brett Rutherford, the FBI was able to enhance the audio on that surveillance video taken at the Dolce Vita restaurant. So that was the big question mark, that they met up at this place, they were speaking, they think that they're not being tailed, but they just could not exactly hear everything that was going on. Well, the FBI was able to enhance that. And now you can hear Charlie discussing the blackmail plot, aka the bump, as law enforcement called it. And Charlie says something along the lines of, 
if they had any evidence, we would already be at the airport, which sounds pretty damn guilty. He also said that his father didn't know anything and that he and his mother were intentionally keeping Harvey in the dark because, quote, my mom knows my dad is going to flip out when he finds out. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah, I'd say murdering your brother-in-law is pretty unforgivable. Yeah. So we also know who that there was like the rot in that tree ran through Donna, apparently. He also told Katie to tell authorities that she received the checks from the Adelson Institute because she cleaned the place on the weekends. So that's why people didn't necessarily see her working there all the time or Charlie didn't work with her in any capacity. She was essentially a cleaning person. I mean, also think about like the legacy that Harvey's built for the family in Miami through the practice to his namesake. And just ruined. Yeah. Yeah, completely. So that's what was what I took from it. I didn't get to hear any of the recordings, but based on what was released in the media, the Tallahassee Democrat was also a really good resource for me during this episode. They were releasing what they believed were the salient points that were lifted off of this, what allowed for them basically arrest warrant. So it was enough. And they ended up, arresting Charlie for first-degree murder Wow! on April 21st. Now, unfortunately, as a result of her brother's arrest, Wendy rescinded the Markells' invitation to Benjamin's bar mitzvah, and they have once again cut off contact completely. And I just think it's so painful because the two things that the Markells want more than anything else is one, justice for their son, and two, contact with their grandsons. And because they get one, now they can't have the other. Yeah, it's not fair. They will get both one day. I believe so, too. And Ruth is phenomenal. She's amazing. She writes in her book that she doesn't even really want full custody. She wants them to have a normal life. She wants them to get to be in the school system they've always been in. She wants them to have everything. She wants them to have a relationship with their mother. They've already lost a parent. She just wants to be a part of that life. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it very reminded me of like the King Solomon situation where two women are fighting over a baby and he's like, well, I'll cut them in half and you each get half. And the woman who's the real mother is like, no, of course not. Just give her the baby. Yep. And the other. And that's how he determines who the real mother is because she's like, I would rather they be healthy and whole and have a normal life, even if that means Wendy's raising them. I just want to be a part of it. Totally. So the latest news on Charlie is that it was announced in September that he was denied bond and he will remain in prison until his trial. He can't pay any amount of money, the maestro, to get his ass out of jail. Maybe he shouldn't have told his girlfriend over recording that the moment there was evidence against him, he was going to get on a plane. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty incriminating. Yeah, it was incriminating because it makes you a flight risk, sir. Dolce Vita? Really? His mugshot, Andy, is rough. He looks like Marv at the end of Home Alone. <laughs> Katie Magbanawa's second trial began in May of this year. In her first trial, she and Sigfrido were pretty much a united front in trying to say that it was all Luis Rivera who somehow had contact with Charlie, which did not work out so great for old Sigfrido. So this time around, Katie's attorneys threw her baby daddy under the bus and they claimed that Sigfredo had been angry about Katie's relationship with Charlie, which had led him to contact Charlie, basically saying, get away from my girl. And at some point during this conversation or 
maybe a week or so of conversation, Charlie told Sigfrido that he could have Katie back, but only if he killed Dan. I mean, it's crazy the things that they come up with. It really is. I mean, being a defense attorney is being like, you must have a very creative mind. I know. Wendy missed her calling. (laughs) She really did. So this is supposed to make Katie look like she's shocked that the two lovers that she had went behind her back and orchestrated a murder in which she is now entangled in and she had absolutely nothing to do despite getting all of those presents and the money train directly to her, stopping choo-choo in front of her house. We should have taken the deal. Should have taken the deal. And it is super effed up that she did not. Because do you know what happened to her, Andy? Do you want to hear her sentence? She was convicted of first-degree murder, and she was L-whopped. Whoa. Life without the possibility of parole. Also, she was given two consecutive additional 30-year sentences for conspiracy and solicitation. She's going to be in jail for the rest of her life. That is also robbing two additional children of their parents. I know. It's horrible for the babies. It's horrible. I mean, this is, we rag on the murderers. We do, rightfully so. But I, I never stop thinking about the choices that they made that also robbed their own children of parents. The only positive thing with her actual sentence is that it makes me confident that they're going to be able to put as much of a harsh sentence on Charlie because it's like the chain of command isn't lightening up with what they're essentially being sentenced with. I feel like sometimes it's like the person who pulled the trigger gets first degree murder LWAP and then the second one doesn't get LWAP. They have 18 years. I feel like they usually lighten it up, but they're not lightening the load on this. They shouldn't. And also, I think it comes down to would this murder occurred without this person? Now, would the murder have occurred without Luis Rivera driving the car? Yes, it still would have occurred. Sigfrido would have found somebody else to drive the car for him. But he gave ample information that helped. But then he gave ample information, which is why he got a lesser sentence. Would the murder have happened without Sigfrido Garcia? No, he's the one who actually put the bullet in Dan's head. Would this murder have happened without Katie Megbanoas? Absolutely not. She's the conduit. She's the puppet master. Yep, she clearly got paid. She connected all of this. And would it have happened without Charlie Adelson? Absolutely not. He's the... Master behind the puppet master. I mean, I guess she got a couple boobs out about it because they can't take those babies away from her. Do you have to get maintenance on those? Like, do they allow you to do that in jail? I don't, what do they do if you I need don't know. to be like have an update in 10 years? Does the taxpayers have to pay for her getting a lift? I don't know. They probably just take them out, I would imagine. I guess they would just take them out. After the verdict with Katie McManawa, Ruth embraced Assistant State Attorney Georgia Koppelman and said, You did it. You did it. It's fantastic. Later, she told some reporters that it was time to get out the champagne, which, hell yeah, Ruth, I raise a million glasses to you. I raise a bottle and I subraj it to you. But there are some perpetrators out there still, and justice for Dan is not over. Charlie's trial is looking to likely happen early next year, barring any further delays, which, of course, there might be. And we will certainly keep you updated. We will be doing a lot more current affairs. We're hoping to make it hopefully a twice a month thing going forward, if not more. And we will definitely be giving you all of the updates in this case. And of course, please come back early next week. I'm hoping it's out Monday, but maybe latest Tuesday for our interview with Ruth that we are so looking forward to. 
It's also possible that we could see indictments for Donna and Wendy as well. I think it seems pretty obvious that Donna was in the very least privy to this plot. All of the recordings show that she had knowledge about this. Didn't she end up writing something else about it? Donna? No, Wendy. Or what, am I just thinking oh, of- Oh, Wendy. So what we were referring to earlier on, guys, was that after the murder took place, that was when she participated with this creative writing podcast. I think that the podcast itself has since been taken down, but it still lives forever on Over My Dead Bodies episode about it. It is really intensely cringe. So not sensitive. She starts it off by being like, my ex-spouse was murdered. She goes, I don't really know to call him my late ex-husband or my ex-late husband, but it sounds like latex husband. <laughs> it's like, what? you're joking about this? And then she goes into this conversation about how she never really loved him. And this is publicly after this man has passed away. After her family possibly orchestrated the entire murder. Exactly. If she did not have a hand in it herself. So I know that over my dead body, the producers did get a chance to speak to her off the record, but then she never chose to allow herself to be recorded on air. And when they ended that first season of over my dead body, there was some real question marks around whether she was involved, whether her reactions to finding out he was murdered was truly genuine. And nobody seemed to know. Even the journalists that were involved in this case extremely heavily and from the beginning, there seemed to be a big question about it. Now, I can see two ways. I can see that, of course, she had to know. Of course. Like, how would she know her whole family was doing this and she had no part in it? It wasn't her whole family, though. Yes, it seems like it was mostly her mother and her brother. Yeah, her one brother. Yes, and also, guys, just so you know, her older brother is estranged from the family. Rob is on Over My Dead Body. He lives in California, I think. I believe so. And he is married to a woman that they tried to break him up with. And that the family is way over-involved and put so much pressure on him to break up with the love of his life because she was not acceptable, because she wasn't Jewish, right? Yeah, yeah, that she was not acceptable to the family, that he, they made him break up with him. And then they pushed him into marrying this other woman that they did find acceptable, who he was deeply unhappy with. And then he ended up getting a divorce. And he felt extremely guilty because he made the other woman, the woman he married, miserable. He made his now wife miserable. He himself was miserable. So he basically cut ties with his family even back then. And he is now happily married to the woman that he originally loved. So he knew this right from the beginning. And he also tells stories about Charlie being a cheater and how when he was younger that somebody gave him the wrong change back while he was with his family. And he said, oh, wait, you gave me, you know, $2 too much or whatever it was and returned it. And he said that his family made fun of him for the rest of the day about doing the honest good thing that they couldn't imagine not taking the advantage when it was given to you. Rob has been out of this picture for a long time. So, yeah, the argument I could see for being that Wendy doesn't know is that they clearly are keeping Harvey in the dark and that naturally the police are going to look at Wendy as the first suspect. And it would be a lot better if she was actually completely in the dark as well and didn't know because there's nothing she could say to them that would lead them anywhere if she really, truly didn't know. I think the only thing that is just annoying is that she it seems like she doesn't 
come to terms with things until she's fully backed against a wall. Like with the grandparent law, she didn't actually allow them to come visit until it was like very clear that she wasn't going to win. Yeah. And I feel like it's sad, but like that might be her same fate with this too, where if she really was innocent and knew that her mom and brother did this horrible thing, I feel like she would have already come forward, but she might not until it's too late. I think that they're going to be sticking together like rats until the very end of the ship. That's unfortunate for her and her kids. It is. I mean, I know that most recent information is saying that she's also an unindicted co-conspirator. So they may have information that she was more involved if they're now naming her, which they are. So if anything, there may be two more arrests in this case. It is far from over. I think it's important to continue to keep this case in the spotlight until everyone has paid for what they did and their their hand in this murder. And I really do desperately hope that there is another reunion and an ability for those two now young teenagers coming into their young manhood to have a relationship with their father's family. And I'm I'm excited to talk to Ruth and see where that relationship stands when we talk to her later this week. Me too. All right. That was a good one, right? It's heavy. Yeah. I think it's particularly heavy because we're going to be talking to Ruth. Yes. That's why it's the most heavy. In conclusion, it's never a good look to nickname yourself. You can't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. But if you're going to, you you reached a little bit high there, maestro. It was a little much. Little much, I would say, especially when you've (laughs) proven yourself to be such a shitty one. Yeah. One no less. (laughs) Yes. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. See you guys back very soon for Ruth's interview. Love you. Thank you so much for listening.